Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Legal Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. You may recall that we started our salute and commemoration of African-American or Black History Month with a discussion of some of the African-American legal legends in North Carolina and the many contributions that they made to the struggle for freedom, justice, and equality. Since that initial discussion, Governor Roy Cooper held a special ceremony at the governor's mansion where he honored 55 of these legends on behalf of North Carolina citizens. Now we conclude this month, but not our celebration, with a follow-up to the recognitions of these individuals, most of whom have largely been overlooked of the historic recognitions that they have earned and deserved. In Governor Cooper's recognition, he praised African-American attorneys in North Carolina for not giving up the fight and courageously engaging and confronting systems of racism and discrimination to fight for the rights that African-Americans and people of color are entitled to under the state and federal constitution. The governor clearly acknowledged that systemic racism still existed in this state's justice system and that we must continue working toward freedom and justice for all people. Tonight, we are going to continue that conversation with Professor Andre Van, the NCCU coordinator of University Archives and instructor of public history. Andre, thank you for joining with us for this uh, this discussion. Well, well thank you, um, Professor Joyner and Professor Dawson, uh, for opening up uh, uh, this wonderful opportunity, I think, to really to share about a, uh, a significant number of individuals whose stories are, are worthy of telling uh, and whose uh, lives are worth remembering. And so uh, we're thankful for that opportunity. Glad to be right. here with you all, as always. Well, to, st to start us off, and this is probably more for... Uh, our audience than it is for uh, us, but can you kind of describe to our audience what is included in the uh, university's archive and what is it that the archivist uh, does to uh, constitute that uh, collection? Yeah, well, um, as university archivists, we are chiefly um, responsible for the, um, not just the preservation, but also the acquisition of materials relative uh, to not just uh, the law school, but just about every uh, facet and uh, organization, organizational part of the university campus, right? Uh, and then we also are responsible for making sure that it is transmitted. That means uh, shared with others who are desirous of knowing a little bit more about the institution. Uh, I know relative to uh, the School of Law, we have been um, very fortunate. Um, the gentleman who um, curated the collection prior to my arrival here, Mr. B.T. McMillan, uh, he, he was here as a student when the School of Law was formed in you know, 1940. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, kept very copious records and notes and minutes. And they have been very helpful, I think, in, in terms of helping us to explain 
um, the, the earliest origin of, of the school of law. And more importantly, it's, it's importance, uh, not just to this community, but to others. And so again, we spend a lot of time um, not just um, gathering it, but also organizing it and then making it available for public consumption. Uh, and, and trust me, there are persons who made contact us at least uh, maybe two or three times out of the month uh, in search of some African-American lawyer, someone who has done something, um, someone who is an alum of this institution. And luckily, uh, we like the CIA, we keep records on everybody. So, <laughs> so we're able to kind of go there and go in those files and uh, wonderfully be able to sort of pull those out. Uh, and, and again, that's only because of, of the knowledge that we have of who our constituents are, who our people are, who our graduates are, and, and what the story is of the School of Law. Yeah. You know, it was um, amazing to hear the governor recognize the uh, importance of the North Carolina Central uh, University uh, School of Law. Uh, he mentioned in his remarks that I, I don't have the exact numbers, but of, of 149 uh, judges right. that he has appointed during his uh, tenure, that yeah. roughly a third of those. That's right. have been uh, graduates from uh, from our law school. And uh, then I just saw a recent uh, uh, statistics uh, provided by Spectrum uh, News Agency, uh, which uh, indicated that uh, of all of the African-American law students in the uh, state of North Carolina, North Carolina Central uh, enrolled more than are enrolled in all of the other law schools in the states combined. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is uh, probably the highest it has ever been because <laughs> that percentage used to be higher uh, than that. Uh, so uh, I, 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 I'm proud of the fact that I can say that we made a mark and that mark has been uh, reflected around the state in what people are able to recognize and see. And I know that you've uh, been able to uh, capture that in your uh, collections uh, for the uh, archive at the university. Sure, sure. And, and I mean, really, when you think about the um, school of law, you know, I always say it is a school of law um, that is driven by purpose and direction. Uh, and its graduates are, but yet a testimony, I think, of, of the goodness of the institution. Um, I, I think about uh, one very important point um, was the idea of, for instance, um, between Washington, D.C., I believe, and, and Atlanta, Georgia, when, when they offered an opportunity at the law school, school of law to offer classes in the evening time, which was unique, which was quite different. And that, to me, talked about innovation, the idea of understanding that people uh, who had professions and worked by day, but also had a desire to be educated in the school of law and the school of law carving out that opportunity for that. I, I think that, to me, is always uh, a story worth telling and, and certainly worth noting. But, but also the fact that you all have not um, stopped one inch from um, making sure that the students are grounded um, and understanding you know, the, the, the public and the community interests that are out there and that they stay uh, abreast and aware of all the, the causes that we thought were dead and buried and yet uh, still resurrected um, even today. And, yeah. and yet they are called to that moment. And, and that is the goodness of, I think, of the School of Law. Yeah. And, and I'm also reminded of the fact that even though they are African-Americans who are in positions of power and who have made significant contributions to the state, even where they have not graduated from the law school, they have been connected in one way or another with North Carolina Central University. One person that I can think of in that regard is uh, Dan Blue, 
Oh, yeah. Uh, who was an undergraduate student, went to uh, Duke uh, Law School and uh, became the first African-American to uh, be uh, elected as the Speaker of the House in the South uh, in uh, 1990, an, an accomplishment that is certainly of historic uh, proportion. Uh, but he's not counted among those individuals who graduated from the uh, law school. And I know that there are many others that you can uh, point to. So let me just ask you, just how important has been the, the contribution of these NCCU-affiliated lawyers to the uh, uh, history uh, and, and progressive, progressive nature of North Carolina? I, I think um, the, the affiliates, as I shall call them, uh, I think they have, their stories have been just as tremendous as um, those that are the graduates um, because, you know, they've been able to sort of carve a space out to sort of help assist. Um, you, you know, you talk about the great Dan Blue, um, you know, as I saw him at, uh, at the executive mansion, I reminded him, I said, well, you know, you have been uh, the prototype of what is expected of a, a graduate North Carolina Central University to go out as Dr. Shepard began this great institution um, back in 1910, the, the desires of this idea of, of his students going out and transforming American society. All right. And, and Dan Blue sort of speaks to that. But so too do the lawyers who graduate from there as well uh, and, and the others who've come in. I, I think about um, in the early 20th century, right, where African-Americans were removed from all political power, right? And, and yet, um, who, here comes um, the great Henry Fry, you know, uh, an attorney who goes in, first African-American in the 20th century, 20th century, um, in, in this North Carolina General Assembly, right? And then he's followed by a, a preacher. So you got a lawyer, then, then a preacher comes along. Um, George Johnson, the great George Johnson, Reverend George Johnson from Fairmont, uh, North Carolina. And then comes um, 50 years ago, uh, as of last year, uh, H.M. McMahon Shaw. So, so these are the first three of the 20th century. And the fact that you can say that you know them and you met them says a lot, right? Because, uh, and, and so though um, Justice Fry didn't graduate from law school, he did certainly teach in the school of law for many who, who aren't aware of that. Um, taught for about three years or more. Uh, and then, um, so, so to understand that uh, how the decision-making is taking place uh, involved two persons who were law law school trained and, and one preacher. And that, that, that is a testament, I think, of, of the early political maneuvers, but also that they had to sort of walk through. Um, but, but also when you think about those that have helped to sort of um, understand the important role, and, and we're talking about intergenerational because there are just as many, uh, uh, as I shall say, um, uh, when I was invited over there uh, to the General Assembly, you get a chance to sort of see, and they always ask the graduates to, to stand. I'm always shocked when I see that there are numbers in there and persons in there that I was unaware from, from the political persuasion and other persuasions as well. And, and then to find that they've sent their children to this institution. And I think that speaks a lot to the volume <laughs> and the power and influence of a great school of law. And, you know, on this point about um, you mentioned uh, Justice Fry and teaching at NCCU School of Law. Um, Irv mentioned that the governor had noted that, you know, of the 149 judges he has appointed to the bench, a third are NCCU law graduates. And I would assume that um, upwards of 90% or so have had Professor Joyner as uh, a law professor, right? And so when we talk about this connectedness, even if individuals, Black lawyers here in North Carolina, didn't graduate from the law school, 
Uh, we are looking at those, as you all have both pointed out, may have graduated at the undergraduate, from the undergraduate institution, and so many have taught either as, you know, full-time, long-term professors like Irv, as adjunct professors, um, and the connections are deep and wide, and that we're able to um, support and encourage future lawyers is a direct result of those who are committed to this institution, even if they didn't graduate from this right. institution. And I can't help but uh, be ever grateful as so many of us are here that we have um, Professor Joyner and, and I could just list a long name, a long list of individuals who have been committed to this institution for decades. Indeed, I think well said, um, Professor Joyner um, has, has really helped to sort of set the mold of one who's been committed to the institution. I, I, I believe, if I recall, Professor Joyner, you, you've been associated with us, what, almost 40-some years? Is that right? <laughs> Too long. <laughs> and and Too I long. imagine what you have seen, and I imagine uh, the interaction that you've had, but also how you have sort of seen the, the, the legal profession sort of transform itself, uh, you know, uh, and so... That, that, that to me is probably something that every student uh, in terms of the School of Law should uh, always take a chance to take a class, but also learn about the changes um, in, in, in law and, and the strategies and the practices that have taken place there. Yeah, and, 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 that's, and that's important. And that's why we have you here uh, yeah. today, because you have uh, been here uh, for a long, long time. Uh, you were a student a at, uh, as, as, as an undergrad. And, uh, but uh, you've been able to capture this uh, history of these uh, individuals, uh, these uh, trailblazers. So can, you know, for our audience, can you kind of talk about some of those trailblazers uh, in the local area that had uh, either statewide or national impact on uh, what is uh, happening? Uh, here with respect to the uh, civil rights uh, uh, struggle. And we, we're going we're gonna to have to take a break right now. And as soon as we come back, we want to kind of uh, go through a, a listing uh, from you of just who some of those individuals were, uh, what it was that, uh, that they did, and the, the value of the contribution that they have uh, they made. Uh, sure. So we're, we're asking our audience to stay with us as we take this uh, quick break as we continue this discussion with uh, Professor Andre Vann, uh, who is uh, an archivist at uh, the uh, North Carolina Central uh, University. So we'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. 
The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue our conversation with uh, Andre Van. Uh, to discuss uh, the African-American legal legends from uh, North Carolina. Most of them, many of them, are from uh, this uh, area. And uh, when we took our break, uh, uh, Andre was preparing to uh, talk to us about some of those legal legends and contributions that uh, that they've made uh, to uh, the uh, struggle for freedom justice and equality in North Carolina and around the country. So, uh, Andre, we, 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 we'll let you go move forward. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, you know, as we sort of began this conversation, you know, um, I, I want to talk about one one person who um, was um, rather unique. Um, his name was uh, Attorney R. McCants Andrews, right? Uh, you know, very uh, well-qualified, well-trained. He was an African-American who um, was an early graduate. Of, of Harvard University School of Law, um, unfortunately died rather early, 1932. So, so his name and, and sort of story was kind of lost uh, to some. Um, but, but if you ever found a, a wonderful history of John Merrick, the founder of North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company and the Kansas Farmers Bank, you would know that, that the early history published in 1920, um, one year prior, one, one year um, as, just as John Merrick is sort of passing off the scene, um, that it was authored by this great lawyer um, attorney R. McCance Andrews, and, and he was unique in that uh, he sort of um, not only um, you know represented these early African American businesses that were being formed on Black Wall Street, but also if you go back and look at some of what we call the the, the voter crusades uh, over in Raleigh and Wake, North Carolina, Wake County, North Carolina, he was very much responsible for helping to sort of fight um, this great fight whereby uh, African American registrars were removed from positions of power of enrolling persons to vote. And here was R. McCance Andrews over there arguing in the courts and winning in the courts, right? Um, but, but most importantly, he, he had an impact on a, a local lawyer in my hometown. And I'm going to come back to Durham, trust me. But, but I want to um, help you to understand how one legal professor can impact others, right? And scholar can impact others. Uh, in my little hometown, uh, it was attorney Charles W. Williams, uh, early graduate uh, of Howard School of Law, uh, class made a Thurgood Marshall. Uh, and and this this guy in our little hometown represented a town that's you know um, has always been over fifty percent black in Vance County, uh, and and here was a man who was um, came under influence uh, in church life at, at St. Joseph's AME where he met Attorney Andrews, but I also stayed in contact with him. Uh, and and the only thing that separated them was the fact that again Andrews died so so early, and so there I am cleaning out Attorney uh, Williamson's house, and I came across all these great pieces of history about his life. Uh, and the fact that he was so important in sort of helping to shape the, the, the early legal framework for, for what would become um, gentlemen like um, John, um, John Herger Wheeler, 
and others who would come along who all had known about, had heard about Andrews, uh, but also took the time to sort of invest also in the next generation of lawyers. So, so I saw it say that um, uh, uh, attorney Armacance Andrews is one who should be remembered because again, he, uh, he really set the standard for um, not just um, legal writings, but also how to research and how to write and how to you know, kind of go out of the normal um, legal process. Uh, but also you have to talk about um, John Herbert Wheeler. Uh, John Herbert Wheeler, uh, he along with about um, four or five others, um, including um, Mr. J.J. Sansom, Mr. William Kennedy, uh, Mr. Rennick, um, and, and others who really sort of set out uh, to sort of, in my estimation, save the law school because they were all working by day. All were professionals at, at either North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company or McCanson Farmers Bank. And they were allowed the opportunity to come early on, take classes at, at the early NC School of Law that, that wasn't guaranteed to survive, by the way, struggling. The School of Law was, you know, you know, we talk about all the greatness that, where we are right now. But those early years, just like the founder of NCCU were, were the roughest and toughest years, right? But out of that, were carved out these early individuals who had the um, the wherewithal, the financial wherewithal. Let's be honest about that. Um, but also also the tenacity uh, to be trained by um, early professors, not just um, here, some from Carolina, some from Duke, uh, and and the small cadre of early African professors who were already here and, and trained to sort of go out. And so John Herbert Wheel uh, happened to serve on a committee uh, that helped to rename the federal courthouse here, uh, appointed by um, I was appointed by Congressman G.K. Butterfield. And, and to see that he was one who could have just merely lived a life of privilege as a very, very wealthy African-American um, banker uh, at um, President Kansas Farmers Bank. But then he veered off and, and he also got involved in lots of the early legal cases that, that really shaped and defined Durham from, from the blue case uh, on, on down to the early uh, desegregation of many of the institutions, public institutions in the city. Uh, and then he didn't stop there. He also served as president of the Durham Committee on Affairs of Black People. Oh, the Negro phase, where, where they had a tremendous impact on every aspect of African American life in the city of Durham. Uh, and so, so you, I, I just have this great admiration for uh, John Herbert Wheeler because, again, he, he stepped out of his own privilege. And he was born a privilege and, and he used it, used his legal training at the School of Law, but he still practiced, which, which actually came in handy to sort of help uh, mentor and usher in an entire new generation. And I think that's sort of important to sort of understand just um, just by those two persons alone, um, the, the real impact that one could have. Can can you add a couple of thoughts also about uh, Bill Pearson, uh, who was one of uh, our, well, the first African-American uh, judge uh, in, uh, in, in in Durham and, uh, and, the, and, and his cohorts, right. uh, uh, Buddy Malone and others that uh, worked Thank with you. Uh, him. So. Thank you. I, I'll be glad. And, and, and I can just say it was just uh, some of the privilege to get to know uh, some of these folks and know the personalities associated with them. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Um, Judge, uh, Judge Pearson, um, uh, William J. Pearson, the name for his great uncle, um, his dear uncle, um, Judge, Mr. Um, W.G. Pearson, who was a noted educator. Um, and, and so uh, he, he sort of set, helped to set the standard, uh, you know, when he was appointed um, uh, initially uh, as a judge and then um, decided to run again. Uh, but Judge Pearson, I think, sort of helped to set, set the standard of, of not just being a, a lawyer at first, but also many are unaware that he was also a business person as well. So he owned, for instance, um, in the Haytai community, the donut shop. So if you've ever heard about it, one, one of the finest establishments, as they would say, in the entire South. And so here it was, 
not just practicing a legal um, in a legal office, but also uh, a pod owner of a, a very well-known uh, restaurant in the heart of, of Haiti community. Um, but but then going on to sort of serve in, 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 in many of the legal great legal fights uh, of the era in time, uh, and and not being so. Uh, so so um, uh, quiet about the work that they were engaging in because they were they were really were out there. If you go and read the Carolina Times and go and read the Raleigh News and, uh, News and Record and, and other newspapers, you sort of see and hear them sort of giving their ideas and views on life. Um, when we talk about um, um, some some real great pioneers, um, uh, Buddy Malone, uh, as he's called, right? I, I, I would go and visit his office quite quite a bit over there near Kent Street. Uh, and uh, and it was like a, a museum, a museum of the legal profession. Anything you want to know about uh, African American lawyers, uh, you can see on the walls. And and so, but he was always always very, um, you know, charismatic, you know, as, as a as a real lawyer. But but one thing I had to admire about him was this, because he would tell these stories. Um, he attended. My cousin ran a boarding school, and he attended um, Pomeroy Institute um, before he came into Central Law. Um, and so one thing he would always talk about was the fact that he, uh, along with lots of other lawyers, got involved early on in the civil rights movement, going all across the state to help doing, when the sit-ins were occurring, were taking place, and, and that, that was a need for an African-American lawyer to come in. A lot of time without pay, a lot of time without all the fanfare that came along with the number of hard work. Uh, and, and he would go there, and he would be there to help uh, usher in this, this new um, call of freedom that that, that students, they were students first, but yet they were citizens of the world and students were entitled to the same rights as anyone else. Uh, and merely because they stood up for their rights did not mean that they ended the minute they walked off the school, school door. And, and so, so that's why you had to appreciate people like that. And, and then most importantly, um, I, I had the privilege of working with the Durham Community Affairs of Black People, um, head of the PAC, um, also a one-time executive director there, uh, and, and having to work with Attorney Billy Marsh, um, William, William A. Marsh Jr., I should say properly. Uh, but everybody else called him Billy Marsh. And so Billy Marsh was not just um, head of legal redress for the Durham Committee. And I, I was just a little, little younger, just kind of sitting there and to hear him for, um, formulating the, many of the arguments and strategies in the Durham Committee about the, the ways and approaches in which this organization should go. Well, it was just enlightening for those of us who were not born in Durham, but had a chance to sort of understand his importance. But then also I would see um, Attorney Marsh um, at the MNF Bank shareholders meeting. That was important. Why? Because for 40 years, one African-American was a legal counsel, not only for McCann's and Farmers Bank, but also for Mutual Savings and Loan or Mutual Community Savings Bank. So, so he is offering his legal expertise and advice to others. Also, um, you know, one of the legal, chief legal counsels for the AME Church. So, so he is in, in, in a multi-faceted um, uh, way, sort of in operation, not just as a lawyer, but also as, as a litigator, one who um, looked over the, um, the business practices of, of North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company, Kansas Farmers Bank, Mutual Savings and Loan, but also in his church, the AME Church. As I mean, as a chief, it's like the chief judge, uh, and he presided over that. Any issues that um, evolved in the church, he was there to resolve it. And, and that's real influence, and that's real power. These are the great, some of the great folk um, we have here in the city of Durham that we've had. Can you talk a little bit about the... Um, trailblazing women, Black women, who are legal legends. We um, unfortunately lost someone who was just remarkable, um, Attorney Kennedy. Uh, just could you share your perspective on, um, one, the 
you know, when we think about women in the legal profession, groundbreaking, not only because uh, being African-American, but also the gender issues associated with being some of the first. Yeah, uh, well, well, of course, with uh, Annie Brown Kennedy, um, you know, that, you know, a tremendous loss, um, but what a, a life well lived, um, 98 years old. Uh, and, and I think as the uh, as the family told the story, uh, you know, she really ran the firm, right? Uh, where, where her husband and two sons as well were were in practice, all right there together. Um, but but also I like the fact that um, here she was, um, not just a, a lawyer, but also goes in to become the first African American woman, you know, you know, elected and ends up in the North Carolina General Assembly. Uh, and and think about all the influence from Western statement. Think about all the influence that she was able to uh, create all the legislation she was able to get through as well, but also more of the example that she served that, you know, because other African-American women would later follow, right? And helping them understand that, you know, you know, you didn't just have to stay in office. You could sort of go out and do some public and service and do some public good. And, and that's what I think, um, you know, we could always be thankful for as well. Uh, but, but also there's one, um, I, I would probably say the most well-known um, judge, I think if I've ever sort of, uh, I wrote about, it, I was lucky. Um, uh, Judge Elrita uh, Alexander, right? Uh, and and here's, here's this woman, brave and bold, but but innovative, right? Um, and, and so here she was coming along, um, early graduate uh, of Columbia, um, Columbia University School of Law, earliest African-American female to do so, came here to the great state of North Carolina, first African-American woman uh, registered here to practice here, important. Although there were instances you had produced in the 1940s, two African-American women. Um, who had graduated, but but here she is, and she she presents herself, uh, and then also one who um, first African American woman appeared before the uh, state supreme court, goes before them and wins, right? Uh, and so so, but she was a legend to herself because of her very innovative ways of sort of helping to um, model for young folk um, how ways to sort of control their behavior, right? Uh, and so while she had the power to be punitive. But instead, she found a different way to sort of offer them opportunity to sort of, uh, you know, really try to work, which was a model, by the way, in the United States of America, teaching young folk um, who had come through the criminal justice system, uh, giving them a new way, a new opportunity um, by, by learning um, different skills, um, being mentored by others. And this was kind of innovative, right, where she could have just merely said, well, you know, I'll just dispense with um, law and justice as I can. Uh, but instead, she sought to invest and make sure that you know, young folk didn't sort of just get trafficked, trafficked and, and sort of moved into one um, lane that they had the ability to sort of overcome any uh, deficiency that may have been there when they were in trouble. So so I think that's a, a classic example. And, and But then also I have to talk about Judge Karen Bethea Shield, right? Uh, a, a legal legend. Uh, when I saw her Monday night, I'm always glad to see her because she just represents um, a, a level of humility and, and humbleness when you when you meet her. And I know these are, you know, great adjectives, but but if you've ever heard her or seen her in action, you'll understand what I mean. Um, here was a woman who jumped in, jumped in um, uh, and, and represented clients that oftentimes, um, you know, fresh out of Duke Law, by the way. Uh, and, and here she goes, um, representing those who um, needed a voice and, and was very willing to do so, but also becoming the first one of the first women to practice uh, and serve as a judge in the city of Durham. And that was important to get a chance to sort of to, to know that Durham is so privileged. And she came from a little, little method, North Carolina, right in Raleigh, North Carolina, um, but yet had tremendous impact across the state and one who is um, 
word of remembrance, as we always like to say. Well, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, uh, Karen uh, Bethay Shields. Um, and a lot of people don't know, but should know, that uh, the biggest case in her career was the first case okay. of her yeah. career, Joanne Little, uh, who was charged with uh, murder. And uh, that was a case where she became the lead attorney uh, literally weeks after graduating uh, from uh, Duke Law School and passing the ball that uh, she took on uh, that case and uh, <clears throat> made an outstanding impression upon not only the judge uh, in, uh, in that case, but also the national public uh, because uh, she was able to show that uh, she had what it took to uh, win the day and was very poised, very collected, and uh, raised the stock of African-American lawyers around this country uh, because of the presentment that uh, she made. So I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, happy that you, uh, that you raised her as one of the uh, legends. But what about uh, Carolyn Johnson? <clears throat> oh, the great Carolyn Johnson, right. Um, uh, among, um, first of all, before, you know, although she graduated law, but, but also equally important um, for those who are unaware, uh, was among the first African-American women to serve on the Durham City Council. Not many people are aware of that. Uh, and, and then later been appointed judge. And, and so, so what I love about her as well is the fact that, you know, they, they set the mode, set the example, you know, uh, uh, articulate, um, well-versed, well, um, um, well-informed, and a great practitioner of law. And that set the difference. And now when I look at the court system today, and uh, many of them uh, we've had the privilege of knowing, um, and, and to see that these women early on, um, just, just Johnson and others, really helped to set the mode um, for, for that, um, how one comports oneself, how one conducts business uh, in the courthouse. Because in the end, it's a business too. This is a courthouse, but it's business. There's a business side to it, right? Uh, and, and to know um, how, how all that functions, how all that works. But I think the greatest thing that they've done was set an example. So when we think about many of the young lawyers that have come about today um, uh, that, that are serving in service today, I, I think that they must have looked up and they had to know and look over and see these women's portraits hanging there and to see and understand that, you know, if they can be there, I can be there. And, and that to me, I think is probably one of the greatest examples, you know, um, that we can say. But but also I want to say, um, and, and it, it hit me on, on the drive in today, um, I thought about all the great lawyers, um, you know, and I'm just kind of reversing just a little bit, who in the earliest years, you know, in the earliest formation um, of the of the African-American professor, thanks thanks to Shaw University, you know, coming along and early had a school of law for those who aren't aware, a gentleman from my hometown, um, J.Y. Eaton um, was uh, early, his son was my son school teacher, by the way, um, but J.Y. Eaton, they were among the first black legislators in the state of North Carolina, right? Uh, and, and what's important about him is that uh, when the disenfranchisement amendment came about, um, and here was a guy, you know, early graduate, class of 1894 from um, School of Law, 1896, my little hometown, Vance County, appointed him the, the attorney for the entire county, by the way, which was which was a black county, Zell's Black Baby, they called it. Uh, and so, so here in 1896, a black man be appointed county attorney, right, set, set the mood. But then he went into politics and, and he's, a, he's elected office as well. But, but, but what he's most known for, uh, and so I think about the voices that spoke out against the wind, because the winds were tough back then, but he spoke out against it, and he delivered one of the best addresses, I'm told, uh, according to all the legal books and history, uh, on the House floor, 
speaking against the disenfranchisement amendment because he understood what it meant, that black folk would be removed from power uh, in the entire state of North Carolina. And he was accurate and he was right. Um, but I tell folks, but it's hardly, uh, we can we have a school, the J.Y. Eden, uh, uh, Eden Johnson Elementary School is named for him, a little small marker. But we were trying to get the state to do a little bit more about him. But here was a guy who, again, who was willing to speak against the day, even when he knew what the odds would be. And, and, and people like that, early lawyers like that, who got a legal degree, knowing what the racial etiquette was of the South, and yet they still would walk into a court and represent that client the best that they could, in spite of sometimes um, the law being on your side, that, that, that you know, depends on who the other judge was sitting there and, and whether or not uh, these cases uh, would be heard. So, so, that, so I, I have to give respect and honor and do to all of those who, even in spite of the odds and obstacles, were willing to still put themselves out there on the line to represent their clients, and that matters. All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And as we continue in the month of February, Black History Month, we are continuing our conversation about North Carolina legal legends. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, our guest, Professor Andre Van. He is the NCCU coordinator of the University Archives and instructor of public history. We're gonna have to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with Professor Andre Van. He is the North Carolina Central University Coordinator of the University Archives and Instructor of Public History. We are continuing with our Black History Month discussions, although we talk about Black history 365 days a year here at the Legal Eagle Review and at the NCCU School of Law. But we've been talking this hour about legal legends in North Carolina. The governor, Governor Roy Cooper, had a special ceremony recently at the governor's mansion where he honored many of these le legends on behalf of North Carolina citizens. So Professor Van, um, you've been providing us with such an amazing history about many of these um, individuals who have 
not only made history, but made significant contributions in the state of North Carolina. Can you talk about the, the support and camaraderie and the willing of lawyers, particularly during the early times, to come together and support and strategize together and um, just ensure that no one was alone in, in fighting these battles? Uh, um, Professor Dawson, I, I mean, I really thank you for that that important point. Uh, I, I think it's important to understand long before there was this idea and concept of uh, cooperating attorneys, <laughs> uh, you find that the African-American lawyers um, understood uh, that by coming together that they could um, be a mighty force uh, and a mighty force for good. Um, and, and lots of times there were cases in which um, they had to sort of work uh, across the state sometimes uh, on, on various cases. Uh, and I, I'm always reminded, um, I, I harken back to um, Vance County, my hometown, again, and remember that, classified as a, a, a African-American city, right? Over 50% African-American, always been that way. Uh, and uh, and there, there you had Lawyer Williams in there representing a client, right? A client who had been accused of raping a white female at that time. And, and so he had to bring in other support to sort of help because he was up against, you know, state of North Carolina and other cases as well. And so he called up to Durham. Uh, attorney um, M. Hugh Thompson, uh, attorney um, uh, C.J. Gates, and also white attorney Robinson O. Effort, whose who's wife and, and, and son also became lawyers as well. And so they came there representing the client. They're in the courthouse. Um, the sheriff was, uh, I, I'm told, was doing his best to sort of make sure because, you know, it was easy um, for, for that situation to turn quite, quite bad. And there, there were numerous cases of African-Americans being pulled out of these, you know, protection of the police officer taking off somewhere and, and being lynched. Um, but 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 here, um, these lawyers came in uh, in the courthouse there in Vance County. They argued the case, but they also almost lost their lives because there were shootings that had occurred. And, uh, and as um, Lawyer Williamson always told the story, that they had to put them in trunks, in the trunks of cars, really to get them out of Vance County, to get them on back up to Durham, because that's how dangerous it was. And, and so, so you think about, you know, the, the fact that, again, even in the midst of uh, of all you know the legal training that you've been trained with, um, but but also the the, the the racial atmosphere, you know, sometimes could be a predictor before you even walked into the courthouse, right? And they understood that probably better than anyone else, but also understood that the, the brotherhood, as we call it, right, uh, of, of all these African American lawyers learning to come together, to work together on numerous cases. Um, and, and, and the civil rights movement, I think, is probably about the, one of the best test cases for that. To sort of understand that, you know, um, uh, you can't talk about this without talking about Conrad Pearson, who, who, and as we all know, in 1933, uh, 1933, with the Hoka case, Thomas Hoka case, set, sort of set the standard. But he also then went to work for the NAACP, worked all throughout the state. Um, you think about as, as late as um, uh, early uh, Jewish chambers and others who even benefited from, from some of that work with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, where they all were cooperating, working together to sort of try some of these great cases and sort of trying to bring about some change. And they did make some headway, and that's a wonderful thing. But, but the most important thing is that the idea of, of cooperation, uh, working within um, the, the means of the law to bring about substantial change. And we're glad to see that on the, the highway of life that, that some of that change did occur because of great men um, that had flowed not just throughout Durham, but throughout the state of North Carolina, who saw the legal profession as an important um, in, investment in tomorrow. All right, well, what about, uh, you know, Floyd McKissick? I mean, he was, uh, went on to become national chairman of the Congress of Racial 
uh, equality, but uh, created uh, quite a record uh, in Durham and around the uh, state of uh, North Carolina, not only as a law student at North Carolina Central, but challenging uh, segregation at uh, the UNC uh, School of Law. So you kind of kind of talk about he and uh, uh, Ken Kenny Lee and those who made up that uh, that that challenge the segregation uh, at uh, at Carolina. Right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. You you can talk talk about um, you know change without talking about Floyd McKissick. There's a wonderful exhibit, by the way, on his life. It was uh, hosted at the School of Law during homecoming. Uh, it is still at the, um, the the Durham History Hub, the Durham Museum. Um, so the exhibit is still up, I think, until the end of the month. Uh, and so you get a chance to sort of see, uh, you know, a large in life figure, uh, one who was uh, shaped um, by his experiences growing up in, in, in Asheville, um, but also coming here, um, attending school here, uh, and then um, seeking to test the boundaries um, of, of this question of desegregating institutions. And so UNC Chapel Hill is a classic model of that. So he, he uh, tested the boundary, got into UNC law, then came back to North Carolina Central University, as others did. <laughs> William Moss, same thing. Tested the boundaries, got into UNC, came back to North Carolina Central University. Others, like uh, Harvey Beach and others, you know, graduated under. Um, uh, but, but it's important. Uh, but, but I did bring along, uh, th- this is a program book from a dedication soul city, right? Uh, because I knew. The great Earl John who asked that question, right? And, and so uh, when, when Soul City was, was formed, you can thank um, Floyd McKissick and others. I, I, you know, growing up in, in rural Vance County, right next door was Warren County, right? Yeah. And so they used to take all of us kids, our, our doctor, family doctor, J.P. Green uh, and Dr. Joseph Green, they had little, little swimming pools. So, but they said they want all the African-American children to have something, some summer enrichment. So they used to bus us all the way down every summer down to Soul City where we learned how to swim to give us activities outside of our town. And so we had a chance to sort of see early on, you know, the formation uh, of, of Soul City uh, and, and the idea that here was a man who took his law degree, but also said that I so believe in this idea of, 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 um, of equity, also around the question of institution building among African-Americans that I will seek to go out and create a city. He, he, his, only, his only obstacle, was a guy named uh, Jesse Hint. That was his only obstacle. <laughs> but but in spite of that, I, I think about you know um, the tone that he set in sort of helping to say that you know we can go out and and coal and pull together millions of dollars to create this little town, right? Um, and and bring in industries and sort of serve as a model, right? Uh, and 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 many folk from Durham came down, went down to help him out. Um, the great Congresswoman Eva Clayton, whose husband T.T. Clayton, who's a graduate of NCC School of Law. Uh, and others worked with him uh, to really help form and formate this early, early on city. But, but, but also think about what he did in Durham. Um, I, I think about the real example uh, that he set among um, what, what became known as the, uh, the NAACP commandos. And these were the, the young folk, right? So early on, you know, here you have Dr. King talking about, you know, inviting young folk to participate in the civil rights movement. But, but Floyd McKissick, attorney Floyd McKissick, put that on steroids. Because what he did was he empowered these young folk to say that you can bring about change where you are, right? And where you are sometimes meant right here in Durham, but also meant that they sometimes go all throughout the state. And so, so with these, these are the youth, the youth council of the NAACP in the state of North Carolina, of which he was in charge of, right? Which also blended well when he helped to um, lead court. Uh, and so again, I think about you know all the early challenges to um, segregation that existed here in Durham and all throughout the state of North Carolina. And here was a man trained here at North Carolina Central University, um, the great Floyd McKissick, 
who said that change can come, but it requires, you know, you willing, being willing to put yourself on the line, put your life on the line for cause that was greater than self. And so I think uh, the great Floyd McKissick deserves that, deserves that recognition. Um, and and what, we, what would we have done without him? That's a great question I would ask, because he was probably one of the boldest lawyers. If you read his story and read his narratives, I, I have his autographed copy of his book, um, Three-Fifths of a Man. If you, you've not read anything, go back and read his autobiography, because it would tell you the story of, of his life and how you know he got to where he was, but also the fact that he didn't stop that. And then became a judge on top of that, uh, towards the end of his life. You know, first of all, I, I really enjoy hearing you talk about the history. Um, you, your face lights up, and of course, we're on radio, but we're on a Zoom, and so we can see you. And it really is a joy seeing you share your love and appreciation for history. And when we think about how history can motivate and inspire, um, can you share your thoughts on why it's so important that law students, young people, the community at large can benefit from the history that you live with and share and educate on every day, especially as it relates to legal legends in North Carolina? Yeah, well, well, thank you for that. Uh, I, I mean, I think history is a, um, you know, it's a very important facet of almost um, every part of life, no matter where you're going to see it. The question of history will always show up. And I think for uh, for any lawyer who is in operation or one who seeks to be a lawyer, you, you have to be grounded, right? Grounded in, in the realities uh, of, of the very people I think you represent, right? So I think many would uh, do well to kind of, uh, wherever you can, take a chance to sort of read a little bit more about history, understand a little bit more about history, understand the context in which, for instance, at, at the Institute School of Law that you initially found, uh, I, I think that's important. Right. To understand that, you know, you didn't just appear, you know, that that was a long history and story that came along with this. Um, but one thing that I, um, you know, that, that really helped to ground me and helped me understand this probably even more. Um, that, that was a, a very famous judge who he and his wife invested in me when I was uh, here in grad school. And that was Judge A. Leon Higginbotham, Jr. Uh, he was holding the um, Charles Hamlin Houston chair in the School of Law, uh, but also um, out there at the National Humanities Center. And so um, one summer, um, Jason Groves, who's grandson of Dean, former Dean Harry Groves, we were both invited to go up and intern with him at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. And, and so the early on, I recognized that Judge Higginbotham wasn't just a legal giant, but this guy, you go down in his basement, he had a huge, he had a library, a library almost larger than the Shepherd Library almost in his house, you know. Um, because he always wanted to ground himself in history, understand how we got to where we were, to understand the intricacies of, of how history intersects in the daily lives of individuals, right? You can't escape it. I don't care how you try. You can't escape it. It shows up in some ways. And so, so again, I think Judge Higginbotham, um, for me, you know, whose portrait is hanging in my house, in my office at home, as a reminder uh, that, that you can not just be a historian, but you can also be a great legal giant who invests in tomorrow. And that's what these guys did. And, and young folk um, who want to go into law, you would do well to, to do and follow the same mode. Invest, invest in tomorrow, not just for your time, but invest in the next generation that will come after you by supporting the school of law and supporting all the great calls that are out there, but also immersing yourself in, in history and culture and understanding how someone as, as, uh, as, as you already know, Paul and Mary, long before there was a Lexus Nexus, Long before there was a Google, 
created and crafted the great book that served as a model that was basically the gift handed off to Thurgood Marshall, right? The great, great lady, Pauli Mary from Durham, North Carolina, who created that great work to sort of remind us all that, you know, history had already happened before Brown versus Board, and, and that you need to know all of that. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that's, that's a great uh, summary of the uh, kinds of shoulder building that has occurred, that has resulted in the uh, present day uh, uh, cadre of African-American lawyers who are in and around uh, Durham and Raleigh, uh, other areas of North Carolina uh, with a uh, African-American mayor now, uh, not the first, but uh, certainly a, a female who's doing an outstanding job and one of our uh, alums. Uh, we've had the first uh, uh, district attorney, uh, African-American uh, in uh, the uh, uh, in, in Durham, a graduate of North Carolina Central. And I keep pushing uh, that, but uh, there are shoulders that those individuals that you mentioned created for people all over the state to stand on. And they give credit to uh, these African-American lawyers uh, from this area who were trailblazing uh, in dangerous times, as you have mentioned it. So I really appreciate your ability to connect the dots that a lot of people don't realize even exist. Indeed. Well, 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 just just thankful for that, and and I would just say I know as we close, um, you know, uh, on this this coming Sunday, uh, I'll be interviewing for about an hour um, uh, now Senator H. M. Mick and Michelle, uh, and as you know, Michelle brothers are very important in terms of legal history. I think about um, you know um, President Carter, you know, having appointed him in 1977 um, as the first um, you know basic prosecuting attorney of the Middle District of North Carolina, first African American in the entire South, uh, and that's breaking new ground, as we always like to say. Um, but but that also, uh, you know, to have someone, for instance, like as I close out as a model, as an example of H.M. Mickey Michelle and his brother, who because of that uh, activity, especially H.M. Uh, Michelle's activity in the civil rights movement, was was the, denied the right to sort of practice with his law degree and had to wait a few years. Um, you know, he passed the bar, but but denied that basic right because, oh, well, you know, you have a questionable past. Question past was you fighting for the rights of people who have been disenfranchised and thrown out of civil out of the ability to be able to be uh, full citizens in America. So, so I say all that to say that that's a great opportunity and example for us to see that um, the work still continues, and we're very glad that we still have many of these voices like you all here today that that are sharing and telling these stories that others may learn from. Them. That's the importance. Well, all right. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but we'd like to thank our guests, Professor Andre Van, the NCCU Coordinator of University Archives, and an instructor of public history. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us, and we hope you have enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, please send us an email at the Legal Eagle Review at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.